Read along with me, if you would, please. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for a moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man had been, who was there, who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Shabbat, the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Jesus answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? They totally didn't hear the man who made me well part, did they? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Shabbat. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to take this time and enjoy you. Redeem every second, I pray. Draw us into this place of beautiful and intense desire for you to know you in your word and understand what it is you want to do in this time. So Lord, open our eyes, open our minds and help us to get it, Lord, really get it. And Lord, I just pray that our hearts would be sponges for the planning of your word and our minds as well. Meet us, Lord, at every appetite, at every weakness. Speak your truth today and save, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's say today as any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the final say. In chapter 1, if you remember, we started at a river of repentance. John the Baptist is standing in a flowing river that's fed by three tributaries called the Jordan. Our journey begins there. The Lord is coming. He is calling. Therefore, let your hearts be repentant. Repentance in its simplest sense, metanoejo, means change your mind. And I've learned this according to Scripture. If you're willing to change your mind, God is willing to change your heart. We went from the river that John stood in of repentance, if you will, to chapter 2, where now we see empty washing pots which must be filled with water that would be turned to wine at a wedding. So we went from the flowing river of repentance to the empty pots of washing that would be once filled, turned into wine for the celebration of the wedding. 
John 3 shows us and takes us back to baptisms again at the river. This time it's Jesus who's doing the baptisms. And again, John, or if you will, John the writer is taking us from river to empty pot to river to chapter 4, empty pot again. A girl comes with her empty water pot to the well. And it's a woman at the well who will become a fountain right in front of him. And again, here we are at a place without Jesus' help. Nothing is going to change. So from river to empty water pots that would become wine at a wedding to the river again for Jesus to be baptized, or his disciples baptizing literally, to a woman who has known the travesty of failed marriage over and over and over again five times. And we move now from a well to a pool. In every chapter, we have seen water in one manner or another. And we read again that this is a feast, chapter 5, verse 1. We'll see feasts listed in chapters 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, and chapters 13 through 20 are all the single feast of Passover focused on. It's safe to say that over 80%, at least over 80% of this book takes place at a feast. And it tells us that we are brought in verse 2 to Jerusalem. We read in verse 1 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a hill. So it doesn't matter where you come from. It isn't like if you came from the north, you'd come down, even though Galilee's to the north. No matter how it is, you ascend the hill of the Lord. So you always go up to Jerusalem. By the way, that's to this day. So you've got to know that if you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to tell someone, tell them you're going up, or you just might insult someone for that. And it tells us in Jerusalem there's a sheep gate. Nehemiah chapter 3 verses 1 and 32 and chapter 12 verse 39 make clear that there is such a thing. It's been already warned of, uh, told, us, uh, told of us. What in the world is a sheep gate anyways? And why in the world would it be there on the outskirts of Jerusalem? Or in this case it appears to be even more so in Jerusalem. And the place that they name this pool is called Bet Chesedah, which has five porches. This is the setting with verse 3, a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for a moving of water. These are, this is the setting for one of these beautiful, most profound moments where Jesus asks a question that almost seems crazy to ask. Now, shepherds were already questionable people. You're probably aware of that. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so beautiful and profound that God would recruit them to be some of the first messengers of the birth of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. One of the reasons why they're questionable is because they're homeless. They have their tents, so they always kind of go with their tents, but they have no permanent address. And because they have no permanent address, there's no way to hunt them down if you need to. Shepherds tend to be their own private group of people, if you will, kind of a traveling community. So think about who you know that would be a traveling community that in essence sort of squats in certain places. Now they have to move in fairness because they can't just stay in the same place because they're sheep, which are rather voracious, especially if they have goats with them, which often they do eat everything in its sight, which includes all the grass. So what happens when the sheep and the goats eat all the grass in the area? Well, they have to move somewhere else to get a more sheep, more grass, or they're going to starve to death. So I get that. 
But if you think about the groups of people that are kind of known for not necessarily having a permanent address, a classic example for us Europeans, if you will, are gypsies. Gypsies have a tendency, by the way, to be homeless individuals by, at least let's say, in that kind of stereotype. And they go from place to place and they're their own private community, if you will. It isn't like you could just wake up one day and decide you want to be a gypsy. Uh, there are also the other groups we have here like squatters, you know, kind of those people that are all kind of, you know, sort of violent vegans, you know, and they all kind of take over a place and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, anyways, with that, with that said, and the reason I say that is, is that normally those groups are under suspect. Now, to this day, there are Bedouins who live in Israel and they are uh, their own private community and they go from place to place with their animals. They have their own unique set of laws, by the way, including, for instance, uh, primarily those of uh, sort of a Muslim faith, that you can have four wives. Now, I don't know about you, but that just sounds crazy to me, but what do I know? Uh, scripture tells me otherwise, by the way. And uh, they, are, they have a very tight-knit community. And you can be invited in, but you, when you're invited in, there's always a sense of suspicion for them to you and usually you to them as well. Now, the reason I say that is, is that imagine shepherds still at times have to show up in a city. Well, you can't just drag your sheep all the way in to the city. So on the outskirts of a city, there are pens. And those pens are for the sheep so that when a shepherd needs to come into a community for whatever reason, he can park his sheep, if you will, on the outside. And God does some amazing things with sheep. He invented sheep in a way that they recognize their master's voice. So much so that they'll flee from another. Jesus will build on this in John 10 to a great degree. So I don't need to teach it here. However, there's another pool because where this particular one is, is actually in Jerusalem. And now we start to go, well, wait a minute. What in the world would you need a pool for sheep, you know, right next to the pen, a pool in Jerusalem? Well, sheep are going to be sacrificed. We're all aware of that. And they are kept by the priests, the priesthood. But before a sheep is, is uh, sacrificed, they are washed once. In essence, they're baptized. Although it much more because sheep aren't necessarily aware of what's going on. It looks like they're waterboarding them, if we're going to be honest. But, you know, you kind of take them. And in essence, you're baptizing the sheep once and you're dipping in because you really, to be honest, don't want to sacrifice a flea-bitten varmint to God. Now, somewhere, and by the way, it's a pool that still exists to this day. Not There's no more, longer water in there. And I think God did that on purpose because imagine if there was water, there would be people hanging out waiting for it to stir once more. And, and here's the weird part. So imagine, if you will, we were sheep. Uh, that's kind of a weird thought. But imagine we were all in this pen and we're like, check it out. It's really cool. It's kind of safe. And, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, Ann says, hey, guess what? I win today. I win the lottery. I get to go and get a bath. And we're all like, yay for Ann. Yay for Ann. Woohoo. And then Ann never comes back. And that just seems a little weird. But it would seem like such a great thing because she got in the water. And when she got in the water, she got in the water. But then she was still going to die anyway. Strangely enough, the ones that got into the water were the ones going to die. Strange as that is. The rest of us are like, I guess we'll just wait for our turn. Now, strangely enough, with that image in your head, now go take a look at this place. We're at a pool now and there's a bunch of really sick people. And it tells us that they're lame, they're paralyzed, that they're they're in very bad shape. These aren't just people who have a cold. These are people who are, in essence, with things that are more than likely permanent and chronic conditions. And as they're laying there, they're waiting to get in the water, kind of like the sheep were. And there's an ironic thing to me, and actually, might I even say it this way, it's strangely fitting, that a lot of these people, they're kind of waiting, hear me on this, they're waiting for their healing. 
And they're waiting for their healing. But as they're waiting for their healing, once they get their healing, they're done. They're gone. There's no reason to be at the pool anymore. It was there to be healed. And once you're there, you're done. It was a means to an end. And I get it. Just like the sheep who are going on their way to die, and they got in the water once, and that was enough, and then they could go and get sacrificed. And the same way you watch this with people, and hear me on this, where Jesus is a means to an end versus the end. And a lot of people will come to Jesus because their life really, really stinks, and others because they really want God to touch them in a healing. And so there they are, and they've got some kind of crippling element to their life, whatever that is. Be that something emotional, or be that something physical, or be that something circumstantial. But in every case, there's something that's thrown them down to the ground, and they just can't get up out of it. And they're like, God, as a last resort, let's face it, they'll try everything else first, but then God, as a last resort, please, this is it. I'll take it. And what they don't even realize is sometimes the worst thing that God could do is heal them. Because when God does heal them often, and not everyone, but there are those, that will happen is once God heals them, they're like, well, cool, I got what I was looking for, and they're gone to their own destruction and death because they're no longer really interested in God because it was a means to the end. And you really see that with these men, and you see it with the sheep, and I get it because we look out there, and there are people that are like, if God healed me of this thing, or if God did this in my life, well, then I'd really, you'd what? You'd believe in him, what, like Santa Claus? But would you make him Lord? Because that's what he's looking for. And lordship demands him to be the end and not a means to it. And we know that because we could do that in church, that somehow Jesus is a means to my joy and he's a means to my peace and he's a means to my hope and he's a means to finally, finally finding love. But, when I, but, but once I find those things, then it's sort of like, thanks, Jesus, you're a great store. And here we are, and now John walks us to the sheep gate. And I look and I see these sheep that are waiting for their quick wash so they can go and die. And then I watch these guys who are basically in the same situation. But he tells me something else in the midst of this too. And this is all for setting purpose. He tells us there are a certain amount of porches here, places for people to lay. How many, according to this verse, does it tell us there are? Yeah, There are five. What chapter are we in? Yeah, and here it is in chapter five, they're on five porches. Why is that so important? For a Jewish mind, five is a huge number because five is the number of the books of the Torah. It is, in essence, the emblem of the law, which for some people among the Judaism is actually, they think, this, the, in essence, the archetype of all that they stand for. Some would have been the temple and some it's the law. And that can be the case even in church. There for some, it's like the Bible's the emblem. For some, it's spiritual gifts are the emblem. For some, it's spiritual warfare is the emblem. For some, it's worship is the emblem. But if there's going to be an emblem to sort of symbolize all that we stand for, can we just make it Jesus? All the other things fall into line in proper places if that is really, if that is who really this is all about. Because we are not spiritual giftians. We are not, you know, first and foremost theologians. We are first and foremost Christians. And that should be the one thing more than anything that should be our focal point. Now, put this back into perspective here, because what we see is a bunch of helpless guys. We see the guys that are in a real need to be touched, to be healed. And we see this guy, and he's been in bad shape for 38 years. If he's been paralyzed, if he's been lame, he cannot get up and go to the toilet. 
And the only reason I'm saying that is you can imagine this is not a nice smelling place. Sheep don't smell amazing when you stick them all together. It isn't like they're going to all, you know, queue up for the toilet. It's like the toilet is where they happen to be. And then you have that, and then you have a bunch of people who are in the same situation. They can't get up and go to the toilet either, so where they are happens to be the toilet at the moment. So where the toilet is is where they happen to be. And this is where Jesus is walking his, his crew. You can imagine Jesus is walking us by a pretty stinky place right now. And as we're walking through this situation, there are these people, and what they're waiting for is this water to be stirred. Now look it, it sounds like a fairy tale, but if God says it, it's just true. And the only reason it sounds weird is because we don't see it today. But there are a lot of things that used to take place that don't take place today. There are places in the world, by the way, that used to be flourishing rivers that are now dry deserts. And if we can look and go, this was, a, this was a, a flourishing metropolis at one point, people could say, well, that sounds like a fairy tale. Well, it does sound like a fairy tale because it doesn't look like it now, but that didn't mean it's not true then. I mean, there was a time where the distinction between male and female was very clear. You know what's crazy? Ten years from now, people are going to go and say, oh, come on, there was never such a thing. And you're like, oh, really? There was a time where using the F word was actually frowned upon in public. Strange, isn't it? Now it's the only word that I know that can be a verb, noun, adjective, adverb. doesn't matter. It's it's strange how all of that is. And the the reason I say that is, is that there are a lot of things we can look at and go, it's only strange because you've never really seen it. Nonetheless, here's the funny part. I, I believe that if God wants to tell us something literally, he knows how to. And if he wants to say it was a metaphor, he actually tells us that because we know he knows we're daft. And he knows that unless he tells us that, we'll go weird with it. We get weird with it anyways. And so he says, this is the way it was. I just believe it was the way it was. And here's the crazy part. One day we'll all agree. Now, Somewhere down the line, there are these people and they're waiting for a stirring of the water. Did that look like a geyser? Did that sort of swirl? Did it bubble? Did it, you know, was this kind of a hot spring by the time? All we read is an angel went down and stirred it and people were like, all right, first in wins. But here's the problem. Some people will never be the first in. In other words, this was never made for those who needed it the most. Let's be honest. Because the people who need it the most will never be able to be the first ones in. And when it comes to people being healed, that's just one place. It doesn't turn it into a valley of gentlemen. It isn't like, oh, no, 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 you first, please. No, it's like, you know, you're cutting in the queue and you're dropping your shoulder and you're pushing everyone out of the way so you can get in the water. Now, five porches like the law. And I want to warn you, this is the weakness of the law. The law was never built for the weak. To be honest, the law displays the impotence of the strong. And there is the danger of building a relationship with God on anything but grace. Because anything else, somebody's going to have an advantage. If it was about, I mean, if you could get to heaven by being smart, the smart get there. If you could be to heaven by being disciplined, well, the disciplined get there. If you could get to heaven by being kind, there are people who are a little bit more kind than others. But if it has to be something where we're all on an equal, flo- uh, equal form on, in need, the only thing left on a level playing field is that God just has to give it because none of us qualify. Isn't it beautiful to think you were not born in a position to actually need God more than anyone else? Nobody else was born naturally in the queue in front of you. doesn't matter whether that be the Pope or Billy Graham. 
It really doesn't matter. And what we're looking at is, and, and I wonder, I mean, the guy's been there for 38 years. It doesn't tell us how many times or how often this would be stirred, but I wonder how many times. What's clear is he's speaking from some form of experience that it's happened before, and it seems to have happened in plurality. Where he's like, I don't know, every time it happens, I am not the guy to get there. I just can't get there. Hear me on this. That doesn't bother God. Like, God, I can't make me better. If he could get to the pool quicker than someone else, even though the pool was the one who, in essence, made him well, the water, if you will, he could still say he did it. Because somehow in it, he achieved getting in that pool. But he isn't going to get there. Hey, I don't know what you're dealing with, but the Lord brought you here today. As the Lord brought you here today, maybe there's something in your life like this. Something that you just feel like, I really can't make this better myself. I'm not going to be able to just tighten up my shoes, slap on those combats, and walk my way out of this. I won't be able to charm or cute or fight or think my way out of this. I feel like I've been able to do that in some areas of my life, but not this one. Well, that's where we're at. This guy is at a place now where he's just hopeless. And we see that in his response. So Jesus walks us to this place. It's stinky, but worse yet, it reeks with hopelessness. There are those who've gotten prime position. You'd think after 38 years, he would have gotten himself close to the pool. And that would take tremendous faith if you think about it, because if the guy really is lame, if he's going to throw himself in a pool of water and he can't use his limbs, even his lower ones, how in the world is this guy going to get himself out unless he really is healed? No. The certain man had an infirmity for 38 years. And when he saw Jesus, when he saw him lying there, he knew that he had been there for quite a while in this. So he asks him the craziest question. Do you want to be made well? What a crazy question to ask a person. 38 years he's been ill. 38 years. I look around the room. There's very few of us that qualify to have been alive 38 years. That was 1979. We're back in the 19s now. 1979. I think that's four of us. I won't say which four. And I look around and I think... Is there anything I've struggled with since 1979? 1979. And he looks, Jesus looks at this man and asks, would you like to be made well? Why in the world would the man say no? Wouldn't this seem like an obvious question? Well, might I suggest to you today that there are four basic reasons And you see it there with the acronym FIVE. FIVE because it's chapter FIVE, because he's in the pillars with the FIVE, one of the FIVE pillars. And there are, in essence, these reasons why you could actually tell God you do not want to be well. And to be honest, the culture we live in, I've never met a culture that I'm aware of in all of my years, and I was alive in 79, I wasn't very old, but uh, I'd I'd like you to think I'm not very old now. But I'm, I'm in denial and I'm aware of that. No. But I've never seen a culture that so progenates the mindset 
that you would actually say no to Jesus like this, like you could. So contemplate this with me. F-I-V-E. And you have it there so you can kind of write it. And we're going to see that each one of those needs to be transformed to a different thing. But the F stands for familiarity. You see, for 38 years, he's been lame. It's what he's known. It's what he's familiar with. He knows how to function in that familiarity. And you watch a person. There's a man that I know that my heart's broken for right now in Greenwich. He lost his son, but he's been drinking so long and he knows he's pickling his liver. He knows at this point he's going to kill himself from his drinking, but he's in essence learned how to function in that state. As a matter of fact, he at this point is convinced he needs the alcohol to keep him going at this point because it's in essence a sedative to keep him from thinking about the loss of his son. And there is a case where God would say, look at, I really want to make you well. Is that okay with you? And you're like, no, no, no. You know, I want to be well, but I'm so familiar with this. I'm afraid to leave it. And you watch somebody that goes from one really horrible relationship to the next. You know, they go out with somebody and they're cruel and they're, they're, they're nasty and they're completely untrustworthy and they're completely unfaithful. They're full of infidelity. Uh, but, and, and so they, they finally get the courage up and they are delivered from that relationship. I mean, delivered. They're like, oh, this is not like this was a thorn out of your flesh. This was getting out of Egypt. You know, that kind of thing. And then somehow after all of that, you get out of that and then you're like, I miss him. Or I miss her. And then, even if you don't go back to that person, you find somebody else to recreate that environment. Because even though it was horrible, it was the horrible you knew. And there's something scary about the unknown. Jesus is like, well, are you willing? Is it alright with you if I, if I heal you? Because... I know there are people in the world they'd rather stay in a lousy world they're familiar with than venture to the foreign world and faith that they've never known. And I'm talking about Christians here too. Where we're like, you know, I've just convinced myself this is who I am. And with that, this is what I'm familiar with. I was raised, you know, in a household that was violent or with drinkers that were always drunk or with a drug house or in a place where there was so much infidelity or my culture just, it's just so about guys having no responsibility, you know, or any of that. And you get to that place and you're like, well, that's just what I'm familiar with. I wouldn't even know how to function in a world that I'm not familiar with like that. Is that really a reason to say no to God if he really wants to transform you even today? The I of five is for identity. It's just who I am. And if you transform me, I wouldn't even know who I was anymore. In this case, it's like I'm the lame guy. I'm the guy everyone knows. 38 years, everyone knows I have no walk. Everyone knows I can't get up and I can stink and smell bad and there's nothing they can really say about it. This is who I am. I'm the basket case. I was born this way. I'm a violent person. It's amazing how many cultures use that, by the way. I'm Irish, so we're violent. I'm Scottish, so we're violent. You know, I'm American Indian, so I'm violent. I'm whatever. Or, well, you know, that's just who I am. Because culturally, we're unfaithful people. Culturally, we lie, we steal. That's okay. I'm just that. 
That's your identity. I remind you back in Matthew chapter 5, after Jesus had reached out and, and transformed droves of people that were, that were brought by his disciples, people brought to Jesus, those that were paralyzed, that were possessed, that were, and they were just, they were basket cases. And Jesus transforms them, and then he turns and says, you're blessed. That's what you are, you're blessed. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. Get this through your head. This is who you are now. You're not just the ex-addict. You're not just the ex-floozy. You're not just the ex-slut. You're not just the ex-whatever. You know what you are now? You're blessed. But I know who I was. I'm very familiar with who I was. But to know who I am in Jesus, that's a very different thing. So we could say no to Jesus. We could nod with our heads, but in our hearts say no to Jesus because we're much more familiar with our bondage and we draw our identity from it. The V stands for victimization. We're victims. You see, helplessness is my MO now. And the thing about being a victim or calling yourself a victim is it allows you to tell yourself why you're not taking responsibility for your life. This is why I can't thrive. This is how I can actually read scripture and see things like about abundant life and a peace that transcends understanding. And, and, I, and I, I see the fruit of God's spirit in, in, Gen- I'm sorry, in Galatians, sorry, in Galatians chapter, chapter 5. And I, I see all of this beautiful stuff and I, and I look at that and I get excited and then I realize, well, that life more abundant and all that. I know that's probably for the most of the people, but because I am this, it's okay that I'm not. And, and, I, and I, there's something that allows me to sleep at night because I can tell myself. I was molested. I was abused. I was beat up. I was this. I was that. You know, when I was 13, this happened on a date. Or when I was 18, look at it. And I'm not trying to belittle those things. I'm just here to tell you, what if the Lord really wanted to transform you in such a way you could leave that stuff behind? Would it be okay? Because he's asking for permission. Do you want to be well here? Is that okay with you? But if I am made well, I can no longer tell myself that I really can't be responsible for the choices I make. I mean, if if you truly transform me and I actually embrace that, I actually have to look at life and realize I'm responsible for every choice I make now. The E is for excuses. Because not only have I been able to tell myself that I'm a victim, now I can use this as an excuse to tell other people. And I've given myself a title. It's in my identity. I'm the... You insert your word there. And let's face it, we live in a culture where as long as I can put a title to it, you would be the problem if you actually looked and tried to tell me to take responsibility. How cruel, how calloused, how uncaring to look and to judge another person who's clearly a victim and clearly helpless and clearly unable. And as a result of that, you know, what happens is at best you get sympathy, which you claim not to want, but sympathy with part and parcel with sympathy comes this understanding that they give you that you can really do nothing for the rest of your life, amount to nothing. You could do nothing but take up carbon space and somehow in that everyone could kind of look at you and go, well, I get it. That's cool because this is who you are. 
And I can't judge you for it and I can't challenge you on it. I can't uphold any of that because in the end of it all, this is just who you are. But if Jesus transforms you and you're totally a different person, now they have to look and go, wait a minute here. (coughs) According to what Jesus said, you're a different person. What are you going to do about it? And they're going to hold you accountable to that. All that wrapped up in a simple question, do you want to be well? And here this man is at the pool where he cannot make himself well. Even though the cure at times appears to be that close, he can hear it. He can hear the commotion. He can watch people diving in. And as though no matter how much he sees that, he can't get there. And he watches other people get there and he can't see it in himself. And how frustrating it must be to watch other people go and get healed in front of him and him go, I just can't do it. I don't get it. And you cave into that. And you feel like you're the one. Then in the end of it all, if you do not come up with something, you're going to go crazy. Because why in the world is everyone else getting better and I'm not? But in this pool of all these people, Jesus goes to one man. What about all the rest? Were they going to ultimately make it in the pool? I don't know. But John took us to this pool because he wants us to recognize that maybe there's only one man that actually could get well and actually build a relationship with God from it and not just want to be well to be well. Now, what about you? What about me? Do I want to be well? Is there a sin I've been challenged with this whole time? Is there a weakness in my heart or my mind? Are there things I can grab a hold of and not let go from my past? Are there things that I've created to put put some form of weird, funky facet to my personality, to my view and perspective of the world and of ministry or of you or of God, that somehow in all of this, if the Lord were like, I'd like to transform it, I've made precious that which kills me, that which is chronically disabling. Jesus goes, I'd really like to make you well today. Are you okay with that? But I'm so familiar with this. Okay? This is just who I am. Well, at this moment, I'm a victim. I'm helpless. None of God's standing in front of you trying to change that. Except in this. You've run yourself over. You're a victim of a hit and run, but you're both the driver and the one run over. If God offers to heal you and you say no, God offers to deliver you when you say no. And you can throw him all your excuses and they're probably to some degree legitimate to start with until you stand and try to use him on the Lord. And of course the man throws his out in verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. I can't get in the pool by myself. I'm going to need somebody else to do it and nobody's willing to do that when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. 
And here is the epitome of man's religion versus God's grace. Man's religion is, I just can't seem to get there. I don't have the strength, the capability. And here's the beauty is, God's already well aware of that. Do you notice in verse 8, Jesus doesn't argue with him? He doesn't say, you know, if you just got a better place, come on, let's say it's 38 years, you could have just been basically at the edge of the pool. Here's the problem. If you're like right at the edge of the pool and the water isn't stirred and you fall in, well, that's going to be pretty bad. And the man goes, I, I, I just can't get there. No matter what I try, I just can't get there. And man has gotten in the way for me to get well. Other men. So Jesus says, hey, you know what? Just get up. Get rid of that. Take that bed and get out of here. You're done here. You're done waiting. You're done being hopeless. It's over. All that self-loathing, it's over. If you let it. All that excuse all that tremendous weight that you've carried now and has become a burden to everything in every breath you take. If you're willing by faith, you can get up right now. Verse 9 says, Immediately the man was made well. And he took up his bed. And he walked. That F, familiarity, has to be replaced with faith. Faith says, God, I don't have to know where I'm going as long as I'm following you. Faith says, I don't have to be familiar with my future to know that if you're the one handing it out, it's going to be better. It's going to be best. Faith says, I don't have to understand. I don't have to be educated in this, but I have to keep my eyes on you. And if you say, get up, I'm getting up. All right. Somewhere down the line, we don't read Jesus helps him up. We don't read anywhere in here that he grabs him by the hand and lifts him. Somewhere down the line, something in his head says, give it a shot. Now, I don't know how many times over the last 38 years he's given it a shot. He's tried to get up, tried to move, tried to do whatever. How many times would you? Probably an awful lot that first month and successfully less, I should say. From that point on, successionally less from that. And you, after 38 years, when was the last time you tried, you even tried to just walk in victory, to walk it all? Well, someone on the line, he says, get up, and he tried. And he got up. Telling Abraham, now it's time to have a son. After 99 years, of living without one. I don't know how many of those years of trying and looking in the face of his wife as she cries because it's clear physically that sooner or later there's no baby coming. And all those broken hearts and broken hopes and finally being at that point where okay, I've just kind of just settled this matter decades ago this just isn't going to happen and then God's like well now that it's completely in the realm of miraculous exclusively well let's see well, let's let's see something really cool happen 
but it has to be helpless first. By now he stinketh. Coincidentally, it happens to be on the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus has another thing to deal with here. Another group of people are completely paralyzed at this point, but they're paralyzed by their traditions. And it tells us that he got up and he rolled up his mat or took up his mat and he walked with it. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, notice, by the way, originally, when God spoke to him, we see, by the way, that he'll be called the sick man in verse 7. Now he's the man who was cured. Excuse me, him who was cured. The Jews are going to miss the entire miracle for their methodology. And that's classic, by the way, when you're a legalist. You're just going to be busy trying to make sure it's done the way you tell them to do it, and you won't even see what God's doing. He's, going to never, he's never going to break the word. God never does that. But he tends to do things in a way that just really aren't our tradition to kind of keep things fresh. I love that about him. And it tells us here that they look at him and say, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now you need to recognize that at least according to the Torah, that those five books, those five porches, there was a man who was collecting sticks on the Sabbath, and he was stoned to death for it. I mean, it's a capital punishment to break the Sabbath. And if you were going to break a, break a law that gets you killed, you might want to know what it takes. You might want to make that crystal clear. So God says, by the way, all the way, and you can take you to Exodus chapter 20 in regards to the two dried figs, I believe it's 10 and 11, but ultimately in Nehemiah chapter 13 and Jeremiah chapter 17, I believe there are verse 22, it's clear that you can't carry a load. The question is, what's a load? What's a burden? What does it take? How heavy is a burden? And so they get to this point where they start to go and say, okay, well, there's certain things you can't do on the Sabbath. Well, one of them, by the way, is you can't walk more than 2,000 cubits. Because after all, that was the distance between the, you know, the people and the, the ark. And if that was the distance, well, then they got to make their way in. So obviously, you can't go farther than that. And then the distance, and then again, there's this whole idea about food, you know, and okay, and there's this thing in regards to taking something public to private and private to public that's called the Urb of Courts. But then you get to this whole idea of this carrying a burden is broken down into eight sections, so they have to ask, when is it? And we're carrying it from private to public, public to private. You mean you just, you define the heck out of the whole thing to where it's like, okay, at least we know clearly what it means. And they've come to this decision, well, what's the weakest person we know? What would be a burden to them? And they've come up with the decision, it was a fig. Not even two, one dried fig. Now, with that in mind, and I can give you sort of things from that, from the Shabbat 12D, 13A, Shabbat 6A, from Tosef Shabbat 1. Uh, and it tells us, in a single dried fig. So what if you had to carry something? Well, if you, had to, if you wanted to carry a fig from public to private or private to public, you cut it in half, and then you carried half a fig twice. Kid you not. And this is how crazy it gets. That if you took a, an olive and you ate an olive, but while it was in your mouth, you coughed and it came out of your mouth. An olive is heavier than a half of a dried uh, than a dried fig. You could actually be breaking the Sabbath for coughing out an olive. So you better eat part of an olive at a time. I mean, once you've eaten it, they say it doesn't exist anymore. You're safe, but just be careful not to cough it out again. That's the idea here. Now, if you threw something up with one hand, like a half a fig, but if you caught it with the other hand, what if you caught it with the same hand? I mean, these are the conversations that go on about this. And if you understand, if all of that was the case, you can understand why they're really trying to nail this guy, even though, of course, they're missing the whole point that the man was delivered. 
Here is the best one, as far as I'm concerned, rain. Because rain is a gift from God. You can catch it with your hand. And you can actually drink from it with your hand. You just couldn't move it to the other hand, first of all, because that's carrying a load now. Because it's obviously covered. It's been mixed with things in your hand that were there. Also, if it ran off a wall or it bounced off of anything else, well, now it's carrying stuff from the earth. So now it's a load. So as long as the rain falls just from the sky, you catch it with your hand and you drink it, you're going to be okay, even if it's heavier, because it's a gift from God. But the moment that anything else is added to it, including your other hand, you're already in, you, can be killed for, you can be killed for that. So now you take a guy's mattress, if you will, this mat that the guy's laying on that's obviously been stained with the man not getting up for his own toilet. I mean, he rolls this thing up and puts it under his arm. It's clearly heavier than a dried fig. So they look at him and they're like, ah, you lawbreaker. And the man turns to him and you can hear the tone in it. He kind of looks and he's like, what have you done for me? Somebody healed me today. And if that man told me at this point to put on a tutu and start pirouetting across this place, I'd be doing it. Because before this point, I couldn't even walk. So sashaying wouldn't be an issue for me. And you can see him kind of looking at what have you done. And we've seen this, by the way. There's a ministry in Tel Aviv where um, a man that we know, a friend of ours, is, was out there preaching the gospel, but he was feeding the poor and he was reaching out to them and preaching the gospel, which, by the way, ultimately they made illegal. You can't do both. You can preach the gospel. They're trying to stay, you know, religiously ambiguous. But on the other side of it, you can't, like, give things to poor people and then preach the gospel because it's a means to that end. Well, anyways, so, but coincidentally, you can actually give things to poor people and preach the gospel to somebody else in your group that they happen to be overhearing the conversation. I don't know. Anyways, hypothetically, get there. So he turns and says, the man who made me well told me to get up my mat and walk. And they say, well, who is this man? Now look at verse 12. We're almost done now. They ask him, well, who is this man who told you to get up your bed and walk? And notice it says in verse 13, that the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. Do you know what that tells me? This was not the faith of the sick man that healed him. He didn't even know who it was. No, there are some that say, you know, you could be healed, but for you to be healed, you need more faith. If you had enough faith, you could just tell God, I'm going to be healed. And I hear all kinds of fun things like, oh, God's already healed me. I'm just waiting for it to be actuated. I'm waiting to realize it. I think when God heals you, you're going to know it right away. I don't think this is kind of one of those things where it's like an envelope you need to open. I mean, and once God heals you, it's pretty obvious. Now, the reason I say that is, in a case like this, this man clearly wasn't like he went, well, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. Duh! Clearly he healed me. He's like, so he healed you. Who told you this? And he's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And so Jesus was in the midst. There was a whole lot of people there. And because there was a whole lot of people there, he didn't know who it was. He's like, it was the Jewish guy with the beard and the head covering. But by the way, let me make clear, Jesus isn't going to let him just get away with that. It isn't like Jesus is going to be like, okay, well, now that you're healed. So you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to go back to him and make sure he can close this deal up. So who is the, why are you doing this? Why are you carrying that mat? And he goes, because somebody just healed me. And that I goes from identity to identity. The only difference is it's no longer an identity in your weakness. Now it's an identity in Christ. 
He's like, I'm not known as the guy who carries my mat, except for those who are legalists. I'm known as the guy who's been made well. You need to know Jesus made me well. Now, he doesn't know who it is yet, but he's going to get that identity here in a moment. Verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, look, you've been made well. See? In other words, Jesus is reinforcing. You have been delivered, right? Now, sin no more. Lest a worse thing come upon you. And I kind of get the idea here that what caused this guy to be in this state in the first place was sin. Now, that wasn't everybody there, but in this case, it was. And it was a place called the House of Mercy. I think it's a great... Now, you're aware of the fact mercy is not getting what you deserve. For you to actually ask for mercy, you're already admitting you're wrong because what you deserve is something bad and you don't want it. Jesus looks at this man and he's like, look it. Jesus has bid me to stand and to walk so that I can walk away from my sin. Don't go back. Don't lay down in that sin anymore. He's given me an ability to walk so I can walk away. The V, we go from being a victim to victory. Jesus is like, and understand, this is Jesus saying this to him. Now notice, by the way, that man's religion here, this tradition is looking at you and going, how did it happen? Who is this person? And they're all focusing on, well, wait a minute. You realize this is a Sabbath. This isn't the day to do this kind of thing. Jesus looks and he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't go, hey, I notice you're carrying your mat. Any of that. He looks and he goes, you're made well. You and I both know that, right? He goes, see, see, look at this. You're well. Look, look at this. Look at your walk. And can you see the delight in Jesus' face? Look, you're walking. Look, you're well. Now, doesn't that feel good? Well, don't you want that for the rest of your life? Well, then let's not go back to what started this whole thing. How's that for a deal? Let's go from being a victim to being a victor for the rest of our lives. Now, now he's learned who it is that's made him well. So verse 15, it says, The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. We trade excuses for evangelism. We start telling other people who made us well. The result of that is that the legal system wants Jesus dead. Because you know what he did? How horrible is this? He transformed a man on a Saturday. Doesn't seem like it was much work for him. What do you think? As we go to prayer, I want to ask you, do you want to be well? When you've got a lot to lose. The familiarity, your identity in that, being a victim having the excuse so that others can look and go, it's okay, you're just that. You can trade it in for faith, your identity in Jesus, to become a victor, to actually allow those excuses that come out of your mouth to be turned into evangelism. I think one of the reasons a lot of people aren't evangelizing, to be honest, aren't sharing, It's because they've never really embraced what the Lord has done in their life because if we really realize what Jesus has done in our lives, I don't know if we could actually stop telling people. And you know what? The enemy would love for us to focus on something so that we feel like we're actually on one of those porches instead of out now clean and whole. But man, when you're aware of what the Lord has done, hey, for some of you, you know what that thing was that threw you to the mat. 
that helplessness, that emotional need, or that the suicidal place you were at, or the addiction that owned you, or whatever it was, and you were in that place where you were like, I am so overwhelmed and I am helpless to get up out of this. And Jesus says, well, let's, let's, let's end that now. You're done with that. And now see you're well. And the guy couldn't help but tell. And my prayer here as we go to prayer is that we would be able to embrace the freedom that God offers. And as we do, that he'd turn us into rabid evangelists. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for the way that you speak to us in texts like this. And Jesus here in this text, we see those that are like the sheep just waiting for the water to die. And there's a man on the other hand that is so different. He woke up that day like any other day being helpless. Wondering if the water was going to be stirred and he'd watch again other people get well and not him. And yet, on this day he had no idea that you were coming for him. And he had a lot to lose. What he was familiar with for 38 years and how he could draw his identity from that. Being able to tell himself he's just a victim being able to tell other people the excuses that come with that so that he doesn't in any way ever have to think that he could be on top of life, but instead he could just live a life where, you're, where life runs him over. With every breath he takes, it just runs him over and he can never get up. And yet you never argued with him. You invited him. You invited him up. And he traded that familiarity with his own weakness and frailty for faith to trust in you. That his identity could be transformed from where he was to you. No longer just, this is what I was. This is who he is. No longer a victim, but now a victor. No longer full of excuses, but now a mouthful of evangelism. And it just, and I realized the reason is, is because at that, just at that pool by the sheep gate was the Lamb of God, Jesus, you, who would take away the sin in the world. And you would take his sins and everyone else's, mine included, upon yourself and die on that cross. You were the one for whom all of the sin of the world sits. And there will be those who will use you to try to just get in the pool and get out and try to live a life without you. In essence, like the sheep just dropped in and then waiting for their sacrifice of himself. But this man knew that it would be you. And I wonder what it was like, what his life was like from this point on. Would he follow you to the cross? Would he follow you to the empty grave? Would he follow? Would he be one of the 120 would he be part of the church? Would he be part of those group that would be sent out heading up to Antioch and see a church plan there? I, I don't know, Lord. But I'm going to look for him in heaven one day and, and just be thankful for the story you've given us before us here of his life. This beautiful, brief moment. And for us, God, please, 
on this day, on this communion Sunday, as we recognize Jesus, you died on that cross to pay for all man's sin. But for you, that was a corridor, a threshold. Or just like Scripture promised, you were buried and on the third day rose again and offer us a new life where you're the end, Lord, not just the means to an end. And we confess you not just as Savior, but as Lord of our lives. The one who, by the way, we can trust by faith will give us this new identity and this victory. So Lord, today, as we confess you with this and we go to the table, we just want to thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for delivering us. And may we today in faith embrace those freedoms that you offer us and trade in what we've known for the beautiful unknown of walking in victory. So Lord, make us such people, we pray. And by faith we agree and say in your name, Lord. Amen.